All right, everybody. Sorry we're a little bit late this week. I'm just getting over the flu, and Sean's been pretty busy with work. But we've got a very exciting guest from the front lines of the struggle that I know you've all been thinking about, Block Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. We have a spokesperson for the Block Cop City movement that needs no introduction, but perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself nonetheless. Hey, guys. <laughs> What's up? It's Do you me. recognize that voice? I feel like Larry David coming back to host SNL. It's like, oh, I used to do this thing, and now I'm doing this other objectively much cooler thing. What's up? Larry David was on SNL? Yeah, he used to. He worked there. He was a writer. That You know oh. that story about how George got fired and then, or he like quit in a, in a huff, and then he was like, oh shit, I'm just going to go back to work tomorrow and pretend that that didn't happen? Larry David actually did that when he was a writer on SNL. <laughs> I didn't know that. And it fucking yeah. worked. It worked when Larry David tried it. Well, I can't. I am always impressed when I'm, I learn new things from the Larry David lore. But we're not You're here welcome. to talk about, about Larry <laughs> or George. We're here to talk about what happened this week in Atlanta. Seems like you're in, in good spirits, which is good. It seemed like it wasn't um, everything didn't go totally as planned. Uh, but yeah, why don't you just uh, give us a rundown in case people missed it on, on what happened on Tuesday? Yeah. Um, where do I start? OK, so um, I guess I should back up a little bit and say that um, this was a cool thing to have happen because um, rather than you know, what we have done in the past or what block cup or I should say what stop cop city organizers has done done in the past a lot of the time or organizers in general, right? Where you call a march and, you know, you see who shows up and everyone kind of just wings it. Um, we this this was less of March and more of a, an explicit direct action. And the people who engaged in this direct action, um, they hung out together for at least two days beforehand. There were trainings uh, from some trainers who had a lot of experience in uh, nonviolent direct action work. And there were some spokes councils where representatives from every single affinity group were able to sort of talk through the plan, have input on the plan, and have some kind of democratic deliberation. So um, going in... So old I think, school. Yeah, yeah. I think going in, we were more prepared than the average March attendees uh, however, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And uh, isn't that what <laughs> Mike Tyson said? People like I don't know, to say but that. it's not, it's, it's like less metaphorical in this instance. <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> oh my God. So, I guess I should start at the beginning of the day. W what a day. So, we all met up at Gresham Park in the morning. That is in Atlanta. And, uh, there was a little rally before the march. Um, we had a number of speakers. Um, Kamal Franklin from uh, Community Movement Builders spoke. And um, both parents of Tortuguita, um, Hoel and Belkis Tehran, they spoke. And my comrade Sam Beard spoke as well, gave a rousing speech. Uh, it was really, really good. And then... Everybody marched. We sort of organized ourselves into three different clusters for the front, the middle, and the back. And um, some people had sort of a specialized role. Um, 
my buddy Sam and I were pushing the sound cart, getting everybody hyped with some uh, Atlanta hip hop. And that was really fun. And so we started marching. There were giant puppets. It was sort of a joyful thing. There was a marching band, you know, there was music playing. And, um, you know, we marched along a path through the park for a while. And then we took a turn and we marched through, you know, public streets of Atlanta. And we were hoping to, pardon me, we were hoping to make it onto the construction site where we were going to plant some little baby trees to replace the trees that they have cut down already in the forest. But we were part of the way there when the cops decided that's enough. Uh, We faced down a line of cops trying to stop us from marching in the street. And it happened a lot sooner than I expected it to, right? Like I expected there to be a lot of cops around the construction site itself. I expected there to be a lot of fences and, you know, we had a plan for that, but they stopped us much sooner um the front line of the march tried to sort of push past the police in a in, in a non-violent fashion right we weren't like there to fight the cops but yeah, uh, I, I saw this happen on the ndn live stream um i'll, I'll put links uh link in the show notes to ndn because they did a really good job covering this whole thing and uh i i saw that the police later said that they were charged and like really that was not the case the crowd continued moving towards the police line and the police charged and the crowd remarkably non-violently <laughs> tried to continue to push forward in a way that yeah like i think worked perfectly with what you were all trying to do on this day which was like really we're not doing non-violence because i think when when black blocks or any kind of militant block is is trained in this what you do when you push towards a police line is you you not only push, but you fight. You like uh, try to hit the cops with stuff, throw rocks at them or whatever. But in this case, uh, the, the video makes it pretty clear. People were just trying to push forward behind their, their, uh, their shields and signs, and the cops um, were losing. Uh, the, the, the crowd was successfully marching forward. And then tell us what happened next. Yeah, so the cops sort of immediately started clobbering people with their riot shields, which is kind of funny because, you know, they're pointing to the fact that we had protective gear as evidence that we were planning to be violent. But um, if anyone could turn a shield into uh, something to hit people with, it is definitely the cops. Uh, Spoiler alert. Um, They hit us with a number of, uh, quote unquote, crowd control (laughs) tactics. Um, They sprayed us with pepper spray they sprayed us with tear gas um i myself caught a bit of tear gas to the face but um luckily i yeah it it wasn't great didn't love it but um you know i got through it and i'm still here so i think i'm less afraid of it today than i was a few days ago so i honestly i know this is like horrible privileged riot tourism but i kind of missed the smell of tear gas (laughs) i I have i haven't gotten it since 20 2017 in dc wait was that tear gas i'm not sure but anyway i, I, I <laughs> there's like a there's like a taste to it that i just uh yeah kinda, you like that i kind of crave it a little bit controversial opinion wow pepper um, spray is no fun but tear gas is it was it, you know, i mean if you just I get a whiff of it it's nice yeah i didn't get the worst of it i will say because i had some protective gear that i was able to put on uh nice pretty quickly so you know i got like the right amount of tear gas i think for a spokesperson for this thing in that uh you know, I, I could speak on it from personal experience. And yet 
when it was time to do the press conference, I wasn't like crying and looking like shit. So, you know, that was fine. Um, nice. But nice. what else? Um, I mean, it was scary. They had those flashbang grenades that are designed to, you know, make you freak out and run away. And, you know, people were a little freaked out by those, but I'm really proud of us that we weren't like, ah, just like freaking out and running because we yeah, had been yeah. trained to not. They're like, yeah, it's going to be scary. But unless they shoot it right into you, it's not actually going to hurt you. And you just yeah. need to try to remain as calm as possible. It can um, hurt you, though. But yeah. Yeah. So but the, the, it, the, and, and, you know, when um when NDN, uh, the, the person um, live streaming um, saw it go in, he's like, don't worry, everybody. It's just white smoke. Oh, no, wait, it's tear gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like the, the usually there's some time between the flashbangs and the tear gas, but in this case, if there was any time, it was maybe 20 seconds. Yeah. No, they kind of... It, it all happened very fast. Um, they also apparently had attack dogs ready to go if they uh, saw fit to use them. And, and what attack dogs they were. Did you see they, they were wearing little goggles and oh like vests and shit, but not not a not a tear gas mask for the dogs. And they, I guess they haven't perfected that technology yet. Ugh, it's so mean to make a dog be a cop. Yeah. They just want to be good boys and girls. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I don't even want to think about it. Um, what else did they do? Well, there were reports of a water cannon also on the police scanner. I don't know. Like, no one has a picture of it like they did of the K-9 units, so I can't say for sure. But, um, <laughs> I mean, between the alleged water cannons and the definite attack dogs, that's, like, a pretty resonant image for anyone who has even a passing familiarity with the history of the civil rights movement. I don't really know why they would be that stupid, but they don't really give a shit, I guess. Um they also had a thing called the Beast, which is yeah, like, this what is literally that? what they call it. It's like an an armored assault vehicle, as far as I can tell. But what is it? It's like a truck. It kind of looks like uh, those trucks that pick up other cars. It's like there's like a huge rack on the top. But I was really unclear about what it actually, what its purpose is. And it, but it says the Beast on it in like <laughs> kind of dripping blood chiller font. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's so sick. I mean, um, I'm, yeah. I'm glad I didn't get, you know, acquainted with it on yeah. a one-to-one -one basis, <laughs> yeah. but maybe I from think, afar. I, does it, like, eat the protesters? <laughs> like a Carzilla. It's like, you, remember those ads for Carzillas? It's like yeah, that. Yeah, it looks like that. Yeah, I'll have to look that up to see what that is, because we're probably going to have to meet the beast at some point. It, it's kind of like a level of uh, Sonic or something, where they just, they bring out the boss immediately. You know, like all of the... You're supposed to face the flashbangs and then the tear gas and then the dogs and then the dogs that spit bees from their mouths. And then you get to the beast at the final stage. But they just had it all waiting for you all at once. Yeah. But now they I mean, yeah. Right. Like this is an important point to hit. Like the, the Atlanta police are so afraid of a mass of nonviolent protesters that they had to hit us with everything they have all at once and all of the cops in Atlanta. Right. Like I was a little disappointed at first that we didn't get through the line of cops and keep marching. But if we had gotten through that line, like I looked later at the drone footage and behind that line was about 100 cop cars. So yeah. I don't think we were ever getting through that. But it took like like they literally threw everything they fucking had at this nonviolent protest. Um, but we we stayed remarkably calm. I'm really proud of us. And I think it definitely helped that we had some trainings and that we had some experience um, working together and sort of running through various scenarios together. Um, and there few... were no arrests and no serious injuries, right? 
Um, there were a scattering of arrests, but not from that particular moment. I think they uh, they okay. picked off uh, a few people here and there who were like waiting in their cars. They were like, "You're loitering," um, so that was that was annoying. But there were very very few arrests at this thing, and we were afraid that you know the Atlanta Police Department has actually not ever done a mass arrest before. But um, you know that's not to say that they couldn't start now especially with help from other police agencies that they could call in to help with this. Um, very what, what both we and they correctly identify as an important choke point in the struggle against them, right? Um, but yeah, uh, what else happened? Uh, sort of a group of people kind of ran into the forest when this happened, which uh, felt like, uh, I guess, a safer place to go in that fight or flight moment. Um, but we did not, crucially, we didn't get separated from each other. So instead of everybody freaking out and running, we sort of waited there once we realized we weren't going to break through the lines and lines of cops that were waiting for us. Um, some indigenous activists, uh, were doing a drum circle, which was really, I, I found it really nice and centering in that moment to try to sort of catch my breath and wait for the tear gas feeling to, uh, to dissipate. And, you know, everybody came back. Because that was one of our community agreements. You know, we come together, we leave together because it's a lot harder to arrest a group of people that is sticking together. So once everybody was back, you know, we realized we needed to turn around. We sort of communicated that to each other up and down the march. And we turned around and we marched back to Gresham Park where we sort of uh, we chilled a little bit. We regrouped and then we had. A little meeting to debrief uh, what had just happened, as well as get some proposals on the table for where we go from here. They also, on the NDN stream, they also covered this sort of marching back to the park. And the, the march back to the park, remarkably, despite everything that had happened in that instant with the tear gas, was also like pretty well. People were tight. People stuck together, marched slowly and calmly. And so having failed to get to where the, the goal post was, um, it was remarkable how well everyone stuck together and calmly got out of the situation because often I've seen um, there not really being a plan for what happens if the cops just fuck everybody up and then people disperse and run around and uh, things can get worse from there. So um, let's, let's say that the, you were able to get past the police or that the police didn't mobilize the way they did. What was the goal? The goal was to make it onto the construction site and have sort of a vigil slash tree planting event there. And um, we were going to stay there for, you know, a few hours probably, and then we were going to leave together. So we're sad that we didn't get to do that. However, um, some people did manage to plant some trees in various places, even if it wasn't the construction site. And um, we also managed to shut down construction for the day, even though we weren't physically on the site. Um, they did not send anyone to work there that morning, and they didn't send anyone the next day either. So nice. that was one about, goal that today? we definitely achieved. Um, I'm not sure. They might be back at work today. But, uh, okay. we, but we, I mean, we hope that this also sort of opens up the space for more people to come in and do more actions like this. And uh, hopefully, because e even a small action will shut down the construction site all day long, right? Um, we saw one pretty recently when some members of the Faith Coalition to Stop Cop City uh, went and chained themselves to some equipment on the construction site. And that shuts down construction for a whole entire day. So um, I'm hoping this kind of tactic, combined with the referendum, which will 
hopefully eventually be allowed to happen to the degree that we still live in a liberal democracy for whatever that's worth. Um, Hopefully, if we delay it enough, it'll make it harder for them to just build this thing as fast as they can between now and when they finally let people vote on it. So that's uh, that's that's some diversity of tactics right there for you, working in tandem. Yeah, is it? Uh, are are they building it right now? What is this? What is the stage of the construction? Um, it's not very advanced yet, as far as I know, um, because there's just been so much heat and so much of a struggle. And, you know, um, periodic uh, groups of folks, uh, I don't know who did that, but people keep uh, sabotaging the construction site, contractors keep pulling out because they don't want to deal with it, you know, for just one contract. Um, You know, someone like Quality Glass, uh, yeah, they may be invested in the larger system of capitalism and white supremacy, but in terms of this particular project, you know, they're not that gung-ho to build Cop City. Their primary objective is making money. And if they can make more money without dealing with this project in which they are constantly having their shit destroyed, um, yeah, they're probably going to want to pull out. And there are still contractors pulling out um, from time to time. So that's a big part of the struggle too, right? What was the last one? Who There's a, like an insurance company pulled out recently. Uh, yeah, I for, uh, I forget if it was nationwide or if we're still protesting nationwide, but um, yeah, I don't have that information at my fingertips. But there have been a number of contractors as well as funders who have pulled out because of all the heat that this was getting. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure exactly what phase the construction is at, but it's definitely um, not a lot of Cop City has been built. Um, the primary thing that they've achieved so far is clear cutting some of the forest which obviously is very sad and something yeah. that we were seeking to avoid but you know this is something that uh I, i'm doesn't get maybe people don't know who haven't been in the forest but but it's a new forest like it was uh like a it was a plantation and then it was a prison farm and so the trees that are there are relatively young like 50 60 years uh but when i was there it was a you know it was a beautiful lush forest you know like much cooler in terms of temperature than outside so the the fact that they've clear cut it is sad but uh damage that can be repaired and people came with um dozens or hundreds of saplings and uh tools that i've seen described as hose i'm not sure if that's the politically correct term but um there were these tools to plant the saplings right and the (laughs) Despite, like I said, there being uh, the community agreement for no violence and in practice, no violence that I saw um, from your side, uh, the police held up these hoes as signs of uh, that people were planning violence. They held up these hoes as signs these hoes ain't loyal. Yeah. We believe in holding up hoes, but, uh, you know, <laughs> holding up their voices. And their uphold, uphold hoes, uplift hoes voices. Um yeah, no, it's fucking ridiculous. Like, we were obviously using them to plant trees. Nobody used it to hit a cop with. Um, I think if I were going into battle with these fucking hyper-militarized robocops, I might want to use something a little more sophisticated than right, right. A, a tiny little shovel meant for planting trees. But uh, that's just me. Uh, but yeah, they, they really tried to run with this narrative that we were violent despite all evidence to the contrary. Um, they even, they held up our protective gear as evidence that we were planning to do violence, which is very funny. 
like they're they're defining self-protection from their violence as violence so you know it's just one more sign of the kind of orwellian state that we live in and you know they definitely made efforts to demonize us as these sort of shadowy out of state antifas that uh you know definitionally are terrorists therefore whatever they do to us is justified but i think the public can see that that is bullshit so yeah um i think there were some shadowy out of state antifas involved but it was a pretty broad coalition you you mentioned that there was like a large number of indigenous people there indigenous activists indigenous militants and uh community movement builders which i think is a a largely black social justice group Um, it's all black uh, okay, all black and lots, and I think mostly local to Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. What was yeah? What was the composition like? What was the turnout like? Well, I would say the turnout was not at, quite as robust as we had hoped initially. Um, we hoped to get at least a thousand people here for this convergence. Um, we got probably about 500 to the spokes councils. And then from the spokes councils to the march, there was a drop off of at least 100 of people who, for whatever reason, decided that they would rather do a support role. Um, I think the trainings really uh, they were really valuable. But uh, I think once people were faced with the full spectrum of things that could happen to them, um, some of them decided that they would rather be in a support role. Um Perhaps we could have communicated that better ahead of time. I don't know. The website did go over some of the risks involved, but, you know, not everyone's going to read the whole entire website. And, you know, you can also read the website and, uh, you know, know it intellectually, but then it's quite another thing when it's like imminent and you're like, oh, shit. Um, But I I was still I was very happy with it. Like I said, um, it was really cool to have that many people training and uh, spokes counseling together and preparing together for an action. Um, it gave it a, a much more disciplined feel than a lot of other similar marches that I've been to. Um, well, well and- I mean, you're, you're talking about 400 people and this is not just 400 people going on any nonviolent march. This is 400 people marching in part of a movement where dozens of people who have been arrested have been given the worst charges you can yeah. be given, terrorism charges and RICO charges, including people who were just arrested for having muddy shoes or distributing flyers, were given these RICO charges. Uh, so the fact that you got hundreds of people uh, with that much courage, I think is really amazing. Hell yeah. Thank you so much. I agree. I mean, it's huge. A week after, one week after the the turn-in, the mass turn-in for all of our um, people facing RICO charges. We had 400 people marching on the construction site or towards the construction site. I mean, that was really cool. Um, But in terms of composition, I would say uh, people came from all over the place. There was a decent contingent of indigenous people involved, which was cool. We had, um, I mean, obviously people of all different races. Um, I would say it skewed more white then probably I would like it to. Um, this is a problem not unique to our particular formation. You know, it's a problem on the entire American left, and we are working on it. How and you know, trying to do better always um, in terms of the diversity reflected. But a, a decent number of um, Black and Indigenous people of color, as well as uh, non-Black and Indigenous people of color, 
in addition to, you know, all of us white antifas there. And um, yeah, it was really, it was cool to see a whole bunch of people who, um, some of them had never participated in something like this before. A lot of them were very, very young. Um, I saw, it, it was really cool to see actually all the different people that I recognized from my various tour stops that I did um, around the Northeast because I did about 20 stops on my little Block Cop City Speaking tour to try to get people hyped. And, you know, you're always afraid when you do something like that. Like, oh, what if this doesn't work? What if nobody comes? What if I just suck and nobody likes us? But uh, <laughs> the, the coolest people from every tour stop were there. And that awesome. was very exciting. So you've been in Atlanta for a few days. What's the, the vibe in general been? Do you, do, does, is there the sense that people around the city are aware of the, the, the movement and, and how do they feel about it? Yeah, I think the vibe is good. I would say everybody who was involved with organizing this thing, you know, we've really been busting our asses 24 seven for months and months now. Um, everyone's happy. Everyone is, uh, you know, obviously we're a little disappointed. We didn't get onto the construction site, but there are a number of victories that we can claim from this. And, um, yeah, the five from people in Atlanta, I would say, from what I know so far, is good. Um, the neighborhood that we marched through uh, is a black working class neighborhood. And a lot of people were outside their houses filming us, uh, cheering us on. Uh, you know, a lot of people driving by in trucks and other, you know, working bands, vehicles were honking the horns. And it was a very festive atmosphere. And um, yeah, it's very clear that the people of Atlanta do not want cop city built one in five Atlanta residents signed the petition in order to get the referendum on the ballot one to, in five. Yeah. To let the people actually vote. Now it might be it's amazing. If you, if you want to limit it to just Atlanta proper and not the other counties that also make up Atlanta, it might be a little less than one in five, but look, we had 120,000 people signing this thing and yeah. it wasn't just, Oh, I don't, I'm undecided about Cop City, but I think people should be able to vote on it, right? Like the canvassing was very uh, stop Cop City focused. So I think it's safe to say that most of these people are against it. And oh, and this, the, sorry. Go ahead. And the city, yeah. in response to this, you know what they did? They fucking doxed everybody. They released yeah. the personal information of every single person who signed this petition. Which you're uh, not allowed to do. <laughs> right essentially going to war with their own population it's it's right. insane i mean it, it it strikes me that this is going to be a massive like even if cop city is built this is going to be a massively delegitimizing thing for the atlanta city government yeah that, that they've just ignored and um gone to war with so many of their own constituency one-fifth at, at, yeah. at minimum they, yeah, they really, uh, for whatever reason, the mayor has put all of his chips on this and he is not backing down almost as a matter of principle at this point, right? Because you would think maybe a more sort of uh, politically astute progressive would, so what would they do? They would sort of, they would back down and they would sneakily build it somewhere else, you know? But that is not happening for whatever reason. Um, Andre Dickens and uh, the Atlanta Police Department have really dug their heels in on this one. Well, uh, yeah, let's talk about that for a second, and we'll, we'll work our way back to uh, the movement. So Andre Dickens met with the White House in, I think, in July, and the White House said, quote, uh, oh, no, Andrew, Andre Dickens, his notes from the call says, quote, 
We received the feedback that the White House believes the Public Safety Training Center is exemplary of what President Biden would like to see other municipalities emulate. <laughs> um, so wh- why is it so important to uh, the Atlanta government and to the Atlanta police and to police everywhere and, and Biden himself that these training centers get built? I mean, I think it is uh, sort of a reinforcement of the police state, uh, especially in the wake of 2020, in which we saw an enormous popular uprising against police and prisons. At least that's what a lot of this uprising was about. Although, you know, a lot of liberals have tried to recuperate it and say, no, the police just need better training. That's what we're doing here. We're doing better training. You know, we're definitely not training them to drive over protesters in a thing called the beast no no we're uh this is nice this is woke actually um and you know i think we see we can all see it right like stuff is happening we are in one of those weeks where decades happen that lenin talked about it was orange outside the other day and we're just we're spiraling into crisis after crisis that this uh you know sort of crumbling neoliberal state Uh, apparatus has no way of dealing with effectively no way of providing a decent life for the vast majority of the people in this country so why was it why was it orange um remember the fucking airborne toxic event that was like it's still a month or two down the coast atlanta's that behind the the times that they're just getting the new york trends now oh no no i was just referring to the thing that happened a little while ago Oh, okay. It was orange in New York. Yeah. It was, you I remember it was that? Just, it was still orange in Atlanta. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it, it made it to Atlanta pretty quickly, actually, once it was okay, in New York. Okay. It, I misheard. Uh, it, uh, I, <laughs> there was one day, actually, during the last week of action, I think that was in June, where we had a meeting outside in a park, and then I, you know, nobody brings their phones to these things, and then I looked at my phone afterwards, and it was like, very unhealthy air quality, definitely stay inside. I'm like... No wonder I feel like shit after being in the park for three hours. Um, But yeah, I mean, you get my point. We're spiraling into crisis after crisis. And so many of these crises are ecological. um, And, you know, this the capitalist state has no way of dealing with this in any kind of humane and effective way. So what they're going to do instead is they're going to use their last well-funded arm to manage the contradictions as they say so manage the effects of these things so people are pissed off because they have no food people are pissed off because they have no jobs um people are people are gonna fight back they're gonna riot they're gonna you know express their anger in whatever rational way they can find to do so and it's the state's job to put that down um and people are also trying to save the world from climate change you know as we should be doing because like i said like like we're in the third act of don't look up right now it was fucking Uh orange outside the other day you can see it you can literally see it with the naked eye and you know the the solutions are clear we know what we need to do and it it will necessarily involve a massive expropriation of private property for the public good uh, especially the private property of the corporations that make money off of destroying the environment and you know using nature as this infinite free gift um, as Marx predicted, they would. And um, people need to, people are trying, people are trying to do that. And people are trying to defend 
the environment against against capital and what is the state's job under capitalism the state's job is to protect private property at all costs so they're going to send the police after anyone who is trying to actually solve the problems doing something that actually works whether it's um you know a, a forest defender sitting in a tree to keep it from being cut down or indigenous land protectors trying to keep a leaky pipeline from being built through native american lands um who do they they're going to send the cops that is how they deal with that so um yeah i think that is one reason why it's so important to the government here as well as to the biden administration that obviously they would like to be friends with and uh ingratiate themselves to and it's uh it's scary it's scary to watch because we are outgunned in so many ways but um i think i think we're showing i think this monday showed and i think this movement shows that um you know we're not giving up yeah you're not you're not giving up and before we talk about next steps i wanted to spin my theory on this which is which isn't so different from yours but i asked like why is it so important to build cop city and build these other cop cities around the country and uh there's one in new york actually they they built like a billion dollar like simulated city training center in manhattan um like 10 years ago uh and i and i so some of the rhetoric coming out of cop city is like well they're doing this to to train and counterinsurgency tactics um which is certainly true uh, but I think that it's it's totally possible that like the police won't get any better or worse from these cop cities. But what it's why it's so important and why like the Atlanta government thinks it's so important and why Biden thinks it's so important is because it's like a gift to the police for their own morale. It's like we're gonna we're gonna give you this nice um, like fun city where you can like uh, kick back with your cop buddies and like play basically. Uh, to show how, to, as like sort of a perk to to be a cop, like you, it's part of like the police culture to have these like training games and to feel like you're a warrior and to like, uh, you know, do zip slides and stuff like that. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, because sure. because yes. from the uprising, after the uprising, not only was there you know very small instances of defunding or rerouting police funds or police reform, there was very little of that, but there was a massive amount of. Uh, delegitim- delegitimization of the police and a mass amount of police retiring early or quitting and people not wanting to be cops. So no much ma- no matter how much money they throw at police, uh, people don't want to join up, which is leading to personnel shortages that can't be blamed on defunding. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the Atlanta Police Department itself is having a massive recruitment crisis right now. They were um, trying to recruit in New York City. A yeah. few months ago. Yeah, which is, it's funny, right? Because, you know, we went on tour at the same time that they did. And uh, I, I had a slide in my presentation that I was giving of uh, an ad for that event in the New York City subway, which, you know, uh, WDSNY sent some people to protest outside of it. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. After 2020, the cops were like, wah, wah, nobody likes us, you know. Young people were thinking twice about uh, if they actually wanted to become cops, if that was the best way to serve their communities, or if they should do something else. And um, yeah, I think the APD announced it's trying to recruit like at least 750 police officers in the near future to go to Atlanta and, you know, among other things, fight this movement, which they have identified and flagged for us as a very important choke point. Yeah, moving back to the the movement, it this this tactic was definitely a departure from 
what it had looked like in the past. You know, the, the nonviolent community agreements, I think, were removed from the sort of diversity of tactics that had been encouraged previously, which led to things that look like this, you know, big nonviolent marches and actions, but also sabotage, uh, like a, a big march. I think it was in, was it in January or February or, or March? Like people marched on the construction site and burnt a lot of it down. And then there was, a, in I think in December, there was like a couple cop cars burned and that became like big news on like Fox News, like, oh, Antifa's running amok in the city. And the movement up to, up until up until now had said, we totally tolerate whatever action people want to take. Um, and so what led to nonviolence being the goal at this action? So I think it's very important to distinguish between nonviolence as a tactic and nonviolence as an ideology, right? Um, by having a nonviolent direct action, we were not we were not arriving at a verdict on violence in any direction, um, and we still have respect for this diversity of tactics, right? Uh, we were using nonviolence because it felt strategic in this moment. And why is that the case? Well, um, a lot of people were scared to come to the forest. Um, the encampment hadn't really been active in a long time. Um, basically they killed a person, they murdered Tortuguita in the forest, the cops did. And, um, after that, a lot of people didn't want to camp in the forest. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, they did not want to get murdered by the police. And, uh, except for, you know, a brief period in March during the March week of action, there really hasn't been, um, a strong embodied presence in the forest ever since because the repression is so bad and, you know, I think people's energy has been sapped in various other ways as well, just from the amount of time that it's been since this struggle began in 2021. Um, I think a lot of energy also went into the referendum in the hopes that we could win that way. And um, it's seeming less and less likely that that is going to happen, at least, you know, on its own, at least not paired with uh, something else, something more direct. So... People are afraid to show up and do embodied action in the forest. So we were hoping for a way to get the numbers again, right? Because we were not able to reestablish the encampment during the June week of action because we didn't have the numbers and we decided it wouldn't be safe to try to, you know, march against the police in such a formation. Um, so we need to scale up massively for this movement for this particular fight, as well as for other fights in the future, right? Because there are a lot more fucked up things that uh, we're going to need to deal with, unfortunately. Um, there's no shortage of fucked up things in this day and age. Um, but, and we also wanted to deepen the movement. So if we were planning anything more illegal than a nonviolent direct action, we would not have been able to do what we did. Uh, you know, it would have been really stupid for me to go around and talk to groups of people that I don't know about it. And that was something that was important to us because, you know, we want to pull in more and more layers of folks as we go along. You know, we don't want to be just like a little alienating group of lifestyle anarchists or whatever. Um, so that was really important. And we also wanted to, you know, once we brought those numbers in, um, we wanted to deepen the networks. We wanted to uh, give people a chance to work together, to take a calculated risk together, uh, to overcome our fear as a group, to trust each other more, and ultimately, you know, keep in touch and 
reinforce these networks so that we can um, continue this fight and other fights in the future. Um, yeah, I think it definitely serves a, a PR purpose as well to uh, show just how hysterically the cops react to even a completely nonviolent crowd of people. Um, and and we, we were not trying to engage in any kind of respectability politics, although I can understand why it might seem that way. Um, we, we were just really trying to do triage on this movement in this moment and show that we're not going to stand for the repression. And um, also, it's important to respond to the RICO charges, I think, because uh, <sighs> that, is a, that is a scary thing hanging over a lot of our comrades' heads. And I think if we show uh, how overblown the cops' reaction is to even something like this, um, it's going to further delegitimize all of the people that are all of the charges that are already being uh, levied against people for very similar types of actions. You know, there's been some criticism of there being a, a nonviolent day of action. And I, you know, you mentioned like lifestyle anarchism before. And I think when I was more of a lifestyle anarchist or more of a vulgar anarchist or something, I might have had that critique, too. It's like, well, don't you know, nonviolence protects the state? Don't you know, pacifism is just uh, liberal or whatever. But from researching the civil rights movement, what I found was that nonviolence was, first of all, a tactic that was decided upon by a broad coalition of people who had different ideas of what tactics uh, would work at different times. Some of them were ideological pacifists, but not all of them. Like even, even Martin Luther King, I don't know if he was as much of an ideological pacifist as people make him out to be. Um, but even beside that, like sometimes it's incredibly courageous to be nonviolent to be, you know, beaten up like that badly by uh, racists and police and, uh, and not fight back can sometimes be incredibly courageous. And it's not simply to prove a point. It's to, it's a way of fighting when you are clearly outmatched, which this movement is like the, those charges and the, the murder of Tortuguita show that the state is, is not going to slow down in its repression on this movement. So nonviolence for this action made a lot of sense. Uh, part of the critique that I do th think is pretty valid is from this point on, is there going to be a separation that didn't exist before between nonviolent methods and more direct action that involves uh, destruction of property, for example, which was not permitted on, on Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I really hope not. Um, one thing we were hoping to achieve with this was to open up the space for lots of other people and lots of other groups to come in and do their own actions however they see fit. And uh, we do not have a verdict on whether those things need to be violent or nonviolent. We don't have a verdict on whether or not property destruction uh, needs to be part of that. Uh, people can come in and they can do whatever they want. And we really hope that they do. And we hope that this um, leads to a sort of growing together rather than uh, a separation. Um, because I think, you know, I, I think it's fucking cool as shit that some people uh, sabotage the construction site over and over again. But that is not the kind of thing that a random person wanting to plug in can just come to Atlanta and do, you know. Um, that is the kind of thing that people can engage in once they have been organizing together for a while and they have a trusted affinity group. So, you know, maybe this is phase one of the next 
phase one of the next phase. That's uh, that's not right. You know what I mean? <laughs> of the next phase of this Phase movement. one of phase two or phase one yeah. of phase three, maybe. It's the beginning of the second act of this movement, <laughs> I hope. And, you know, on some level. You know, some, sometimes plays have five acts. Right. Exactly. And on, like on some level, what we did together on Monday was a training for whatever more advanced thing some people decide to do next. What do you think comes next? What's what's fa- uh, phase two of phase two going to be? Ugh, million dollar question. Um, we have had a, we've had a few meetings about this, about where we go from here that I think we're very generative at the same time that, you know, people brought up some things that maybe could have been done better in this moment. Um, there's some cool proposals on the table. I think we want to keep incorporating more uh, Palestinian solidarity. I think that is really important because, um, you know, in addition to the more general connections of, you know, settler colonialism, uh, both here and in Israel, uh, there are very explicit connections between the Atlanta Police Department and the IDF, right? They already have an exchange program called Gilly. Um, some APD officers just the other day were uh, <laughs> running through some sort of training to get, uh, I think it was drug dealers or someone off a roof, but they were referring to them as Hamas militants. And uh, if this cop city is built, uh, the exchange program will obviously going to hyperdrive and a lot of these sort of counterinsurgency tactics are things that you already see in Israel. Um, they have had cop cities over there for a while now. So I think that's really important um, in order to make those connections. And um, what else are we going to do? I don't know. Uh, I don't want to say just yet because it's all very much in its infancy and um, we haven't really decided on anything just yet but um we definitely well, the, re- the referendum is in the works that's one thing yeah yeah the referendum's in the works so. and there's the pre- pressuring the insurance companies so they'll, they'll, i'll put links to the show notes in the for the wheelani defense societies that are all over the country um that people can maybe plug into their local chapter or just follow the movement in general and there's there's a uh, constant sort of action alerts um, yeah for sure I mean, one thing that's really cool about this is there are Wilani Defense Society chapters all over the country. And um, we had a meeting sort of, you know, we had one of several where do we go from here meetings where people from various regions sort of clustered up together and talked about, you know, how do we bring these skills home and fight against cop cities that they're trying to build where we live? And, you know, what else do we want to work on together? And in that way, I think it was really cool, you know, because I didn't know a lot. I, I knew the Atlanta people coming into this better than I knew the New York people. And it was it was important to me to, you know, also meet the New York people. It just turned out that we had to converge in Atlanta first. But I am really excited to continue organizing with them when I go back home. And, um, you know, I, I hesitate to declare anything the party because that feels like getting out over your skis a little bit. But it is very exciting to me that we are building a nationwide network that is, you know, a movement against police and prisons, as well as, uh, you know, trying to save the earth from climate change. And I think we need to keep going with it and, you know, push it as far as we can, because uh, the world is not going well. And another thing I'd like to mention is that uh, there is a part of the movement that is, 
supporting the people with charges of of course rico and terrorism charges and uh like you said they they had the turn-in day where what was it like uh 60 plus people showed up before a judge and were arrested i think they were they're all released by now but there's two i think there are two prisoners of the movement francis carroll and victor puertas is that right they're just two that are incarcerated I believe so. And Victor is uh, such a sad case because <clears throat> because ICE got him. Right. And you do not want ICE to get a hold of you. And this is a person who was, who was just at a concert and he was arrested. One of these people who were arrested just for having muddy shoes at an outdoor concert. Yeah, and that a- was uh, evidence enough for the police that he had taken part in a direct action previously. Um, and now he's, nightmare. Yeah, now he's in ICE custody. Um, but these are people you could write to. Uh, I'll put that information in the show notes. And and Francis Carroll, I think, just has multiple felony charges and is just being held in jail uh, without bail. Yeah. Oh, also, I forgot to mention, I think this is really important, too. Um, a number of Muskogee people, like, they were not engaged in Block Cop City when this happened. They were just visiting the forest. They were just trying to visit their ancestral homeland before the trees get cut down again and don't come back for, you know, however many years. They, they sent a SWAT team after them. They were literally wow. praying at um, Tortuguita's memorial site, at the site where Tortuguita was murdered. They had no shoes on and they were praying. And a fucking SWAT team, a militarized SWAT team full of like roided out, you know, turbo cops decided to arrest them and wow. hold them in horrible conditions in the Fulton County jail for several days. And I was just talking to a few of them last night and uh, they were definitely subject to more than even the normal level of abuse that people are subjected to when they go in there. That's horrible. And for people who don't know, the, the Muscogee people lived in this air, er- that area uh, where the Willani forest is until they were forced out on the trail of tears. So yeah, that like is, real- when, when we say, <laughs> when we say like land back and you know, this is their land, like literally they were ethnically cleansed from the area. Yeah. It really feels like a microcosm of uh, what happened with settler colonialism and what, and what's it's like, it's like, guess what? And- guess what? It's still happening. It's still here. Yeah. If you try to go back to your ancestral homeland and pray, we will respond with incredible violence. Just, just so you know, that's still a thing. Or just plant trees or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or have a referendum. Um, And it's, yeah, so I think this is what's so remarkable about the the Stop Cop City movement is it's, we we talk about how it's trying to build cop cities everywhere as sort of a response to the uprising to stop those kind of riots and uprisings from happening again. But the movement, in, in this sense at least, moved on from just a fight against the police or just a fight against police stations and police violence to the root of the problem, which is the land and who owns it and who gets to decide what happens with it. And so that's why I think this action was so smart is that it it wasn't trying to fight the police. It was trying to get to the land and plant trees. And which is, uh, I think, more aimed at the, the total question in a way that brings so much together, decolonization, environmentalism, gentrification, racism, but also, like you mentioned, what's happening in Palestine right now. Not only is there the obvious that 
Israeli police and Israeli military have connections to American police and American military and train together. But also there's a common vision of the people who live in this place don't get to determine what happens with it. And if they resist, we will get rid of all of them. We'll declare them all terrorists. They will all be targets for murder and expulsion. And the idea of this movement is like, well, we're going to try to experiment with fighting back against it and resisting despite being being a very uphill battle. I could not have said it better myself. And thank you. Thank you for uh, continuing to you know care about this and cover it. Um, you were the person who first talked me into going, if you recall. And now it's uh, it's what I want to spend my time doing. And I've kind of rearranged my life in order to more fully participate. So well, yeah, thanks, thank you for being thanks, such an effective spokesperson for it. Maybe we, we could close just by talking a little bit about about you and like how you became so involved in it. Um, you know, besides me mentioning to you that it might be a good idea. Uh, you, I think you you initially went to write about it as a journalist and and here you are as a, as a spokesperson. So how, how did that happen? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I was kind of burned out on DSA and had been for a while. Um, you know, I kind of came into the left through the ultra left initially and then uh, kind of pieced out to do my own thing in DSA. And because, uh, you know, I came in through through Sean uh, once upon a time. Uh, Peaced out to do my own thing in DSA, was hoping to believe in democratic socialist politics because that is a less scary kind of politics to engage in, uh, right? Like objectively so, uh, less likely to get you hurt or arrested. And, you know, I tried. I tried it for a while, but I could never fully talk myself into believing in it. And then when I saw this kind of inspiring direct action happening, um, you know, it, it was a time in my life when I was sort of trying to figure out um, what I'm going to devote my time to. Really, I was feeling a little bit directionless, um, you know, after leaving the Antifada and finishing my book proposal, but having it rejected and uh, just trying to figure out, like, what am I going to spend my time on? How am I going to make money? How am I going to support what my concept of a good life is? And uh what I decided was, um, yeah, I'm going to start an OnlyFans and I'm going to make money that way so I can find, I can devote more of my attention to my real job, which is obviously trying to improve the world. And uh, I went in March sort of as, uh, as a journalist, but also as someone who just wanted an excuse to go and see it and check it out for myself because, you know, occupations have definitely had a mixed uh a mixed track record in recent years, to say the least. You know, you have things like Standing Rock, but you also have things like the Chaz or whatever that, um, you know, weren't uh, the most, uh, they, they weren't something that would inspire someone to rearrange their life for. I'll just say yeah. that. So <laughs> I, I had to New see York for Chaz myself. Chaz was kind of cool, but. Yeah, for sure. About that one. I've, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the one on the West Coast, but yeah. Yeah, um, I haven't heard too much positive stuff about that, unfortunately. Yeah, so, you know, I wanted to see for myself, and, um, and I knew some people who were involved with it already, uh, through you, Andy, through other friends of mine, but I didn't know a ton of people. You know, Atlanta is a, a different milieu than New York, although, you know, there are people from all over the country who come to both places, 
And uh, I was really impressed by what I saw there. And uh, I was like, you know what? Th I think this might be what I've been looking for in terms of my new organizing cause, in terms of something that I can believe in as a communist, right? Because I don't want to shit on anything that DSA does. I think it's all good stuff to be doing. But the connection between that and global communist revolution is, um, you know, it's a little sketchy in my mind. And uh, obviously, I don't have it all the way sketched out anyway, even in connection to this, but it definitely feels like it fits into my theory of change a little bit better. And it seemed like a very functional group of people. Uh, a, a cool, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's like internal drama that I'm not privy to because I don't live in Atlanta, right? But at least in my experience, it's been a very functional group of people. You know, I like them. That's important, right? Like it's important to like the people that you're organizing with. Um, I have a lot of political affinity with them. And, you know, I feel like I'm a part of a really good group of people, a functional group of people that I respect. And I feel like we're sort of growing our politics together and cohering a vision for, you know, I mean, a lot of people, there's people who write together, there's people who work together on activism. And I feel like a lot of these people are doing both. And I think that is really important to sort of combine um, theory and practice. Um, I'm going to say the magic word now, praxis, praxis. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It just feels like I, for the first time, maybe more than ever before, I am part of a group that I really respect. And I know that I can, I can ask people for advice on whatever, even if it's something to do with my own career and not necessarily directly involved with organizing. And they'll tell me, um, there's a very sort of pragmatic assessment of what everybody brings to the table, whether it's, you know, this person knows how to cook or this person is, uh, you know, a, a moderately successful podcaster of, <laughs> you know, currently, formerly, whatever. And, uh, I don't know. I feel it's making me feel kind of like a bad bitch for the first time ever. And <laughs> it's actually reminding me of, um, like talking to like seasoned Black Panthers or something. Like, remember when we had Bradley Green on the show? Uh, remember when we had, uh, well, we never had on Boots Riley, but I get the same vibe when I talk to him, or when, I, uh, when I listen to him in an interview, right? That sort of confidence that comes from being a well-trained organizer of many years who is has or just been being committed in, like with a vision yeah for sure committed with a vision and just working on it all the time both in theory and in practice and uh, i'm starting to feel what it is like to have that kind of confidence and i would like to continue developing that in myself and in other people too beautiful praxis it's not just a fascist city state <laughs> to be built in the mediterranean uh, still a, a leftist <laughs> concept. I guess I'll just leave it to you to to let the listeners who miss you, as we all do, what else has been going on with you? What what can we check out that you've been doing besides blocking Cop City? Well, um, I am currently trying to figure that the fuck out, but I am really excited to be uh, starting to write again because that was, you know, my career for a pretty long time until I fell dick first into the world of podcasting uh, six years ago. <laughs> so um, believe it or not, I just published the first thing that I've ever written, the first like serious piece of writing I've ever done that has to do with communist politics. And that is in the LA Review of Books. I wrote a review of a book on the George Floyd uprising 
that was put out by the Vortex Group. And I know you're familiar with that, Andy. And um, maybe you could put a link to that in the show notes as well. um, Because I think there is definitely some overlap between the ideas discussed therein and the ideas that we discussed today. And um, beyond that, I don't really know what's happening with ELC. <laughs> I'm be honest with you. I'm going to keep it 100. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm at Eric's house right now. Like, we're all still friends. We just don't know, uh, you know, what the future holds for that particular little. Well, people can at least check out the back episodes of Everybody Loves Communism. And um, yeah, for sure. Maybe if you like it, you can say, hey, we're more, more ELC. Bring it back. You definitely can. And I'm very susceptible to peer pressure and to flattery from uh, the listeners. So that uh, that definitely could work. Um, Also, I should mention a lot of our episodes are evergreen because they have to do with very old texts, very old theory texts and some history. So, you know, it's not like uh, listening, trying to listen to a news app of Chapo that they put out like three months ago. You know, these are uh, these are going to be good for a while, hopefully. And isn't what, there wait. something else you're forgetting to plug? Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, the woke mob. Duh. Is that what you're getting at? No, but fuck <laughs> that, that too. Why do I even do? I'm like so fried from uh, just being here. I've just been on 24-7 since I landed in Atlanta. This is the first day that I've really had any time to chill whatsoever. I think I might go get a massage later. I went on I went on this local NPR affiliate yesterday and I feel like I was very shrill. Like everyone else had their fucking radio voice on and I was like still kind of keyed up from running around and getting tear You were talking the in the before, podcast voice and not the NPR like, voice. Yeah. So I was like, ah, here's some crazy shit that happened. Blah, you were saying praxis, but, but you I weren't know. saying praxis. I was what? You were saying praxis, but you weren't saying praxis. Yeah, that's exactly. that's the the podcast no, I, voice versus the NPR voice. I I always forget. I mean, you know this about me. Like, I get excited and I forget to talk like that. Like, hello, friends. Today we're going to talk about what it means to sabotage a construction site <laughs> and do praxis. Like, no, I I'm sorry. I just I get I get shrill. But uh, you know, whatever. Um, where am I going with this? Oh yeah, I um. I kind of started a new com. I I did. I started a new comedy project with my buddy Jake Flores, called the Woke Mob, which is sort of a leftist late night show, and we filmed the first one live at TVI in Ridgewood, Queens, and the full video of that is now up on YouTube. And Andy was a guest. You may recognize some of the people on it, um, and it was super fun. And I think we're gonna shop it around now. And see if anybody wants to give us money to make more episodes. Uh, Jake moved to L.A., so that makes it a little more complicated. But, you know, ain't nothing wrong with being bi-coastal. I'm going to come out as bi-coastal right now. No, just kidding. That's a joke I stole from Jake. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was super fun. We put that up online. And uh, we also put our we filmed a sketch that we used in the show, like a pre-filmed sketch. We put that online as well. It's called This Old Punk House. It will be very funny to anyone who has ever lived or been in a punk house, I think, I hope. So uh, that is another thing you can check out. And like, what even else is there? Uh, I forgot. I forgot what I have going on in my own life. Well, you could plug your OnlyFans. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know. You don't have to. (laughs) 
<laughs> but if there was a discount code for Antifada listeners, I'm sure. They'd <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm still a little bit embarrassed that I do it. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't know. I don't know if it's just like internalized horophobia, or if it just feels like sort of a sort of an undignified thing that's going to make people take me less seriously as uh, you know certain pe- well-meaning people have warned me about but um yeah no i won't say no to money i just don't ever want to hear about it <laughs> like I, i've heard that, that it's is very agreement, successful right like you can look successful. at it that is fine i just don't want to talk about it with you if okay. you especially if you like want to be you know actual friends with me i try to keep some boundaries there but i'll talk to you in the only fans that is fine all right so people can find that not too difficult. Um, I guess that's it. Thanks so much for coming back on the show and joining us. And uh, Cop City will never be built. Hell yeah. Cop City will never be fucking built. And we're going to make sure of that. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for Thank engaging you. with this. And, you know, keeping we got to We got to keep the pressure on. We got to keep the attention on because, um, you know, it's been a few years and it's easy for people to get tired. It's easy for people to move on. Um, I think the investigation into the murder of Tortuguita is one thing that is especially important to keep our attention on because um, there has been a massive cover up and I'm afraid that it could work if people don't continue, uh, you know, being vigilant about it. So uh, thank you for that. All right. All right. Thanks, Jamie. Peace.